Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they can help us to think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Jen Frey, on my blog, thevirtueblog.com, or my website, jenniferannfrey.com. I'm also on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. So for today's episode, I'm talking with my colleague and neighbor, Professor Ann Pollock, about Goethe's famous tragic drama, Faust. In this play, Goethe explores how the infinite striving that lies at the heart of human experience can get us into all kinds of trouble, but how love might also help redeem it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It is my pleasure to introduce this morning my colleague, Dr. Ann Pollock, here in the philosophy department at the University of South Carolina. Anne received her PhD from Martin Luther University in Halle-Wittenberg, that's in Germany, of course. Her primary areas of interest are in early modern philosophy, aesthetics in the continental tradition, and 20th century philosophy of culture. She's written a lot on Moses Mendelssohn's anthropology, and she was awarded the Mendelssohn Prize of the Moses Mendelssohn Society. She has recently been focusing on Ernst Cassir's philosophy of symbolic forms. Welcome, Anne. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm very excited because you want to talk about Faust, and I want to talk about Faust, So, and uh, I want other people to be excited about Faust. So anyway, Faust is hard, so we should dig right in. But first, I really want to ask you about its author, Goethe. Who is Goethe? Can you tell us about Goethe? So yeah, the funny thing with Goethe is always, so when you are studying literature in Germany, which I did, the first thing is, why not Goethe, right? So everybody knows him, everybody is supposed to admire him at least. The thing is that I personally, I don't like Goethe at all. So I read the Eckermann um, um, discussions or dialogues um, and found him very manipulative and egoistic. But that is an outsider view because, of course, he's so important and he's, well, damn it, he's really, really good. So whenever <laughs> you read anything of him and you don't like him, you will go out of this reading defeated and think like, yeah, he is still absolutely fantastic. So, But you can, like, love, hate him. So, exactly. like, I disagree with almost everything Kant ever said, but I obsessively read Kant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is... I, I guess this, this puts it pretty well for me, too. So Goethe himself lived in the 18th century, second part of the 18th century, and also the first part of the 19th century. You could say that he covers that period in which German literature was at its height, absolute height. And he knew everyone. He was known by everyone. He was in contact with everyone. He was best friends with Schiller, whom he survived of 30 years. And they together founded what is called now um, German classicism. But Goethe was not just a classicist. He was in the beginning of his, when he, when he started to write, so he studied law, was never really into it, and he was a 
important part of the storm and stress area. So he era, so mm-hmm. he he knew uh, Herder, he knew all of these people. He wrote poems that are little pieces that are very much in that kind of style. Then with Schiller, together with Schiller, he developed the idea of German classicism. So going back to the classics, but also putting that in a good German prose. And later on, he became interested in the idea of the Bildungsroman. So when we talk about that, the coming of age romance. Yes, coming of age, um, And so his, his version was the first one, and everybody was uh, kind of referencing this in order to develop their own. And so this was, what everywhere. was this novel? That is Wilhelm Meister, the Lehrjahre and the Bildungsjahre. And of course, we have in before that, in the 70s, we have the infamous uh, Werther, who uh, inspired so many people to commit suicide, or at least be very afraid of their kids committing suicide. I know a really nice episode where Mendelssohn got to know that his student was reading Werther, and he stormed into her bedroom and threw it out of the window. So that is the kind of very stressful relation that Goethe has to the previous times of the Enlightenment. I think he's really not a representative of that time, but he has kind of taken up interesting thoughts from the, from all of these times and put them together in his writing. Is Faust Goethe's masterpiece? I would say, yeah. Do you Absolutely. think he thought of it that way, in the um, way that Dante would have thought of his comedy? Yeah, he once wrote in a letter to um, the Herzog Karl August, he wrote, this is the summa summarum of my life. And that he wrote that in the 20s of the uh, 19th century. So he was very well aware that this was something he came back to time and again. In, in the early years, he was never quite happy with what he produced, but he still kept it and he kept working on it. So the first part was published in 1808, and he kept working on, on, on the material, and he had to kind of find ways to make it interesting for him, make it relevant for him. Unless that was not relevant to him, he couldn't really write about it. And then with the Faust II, he finished it, and it, I think he was pretty much convinced that this is finished. He even wrote an epilogue to it that he later crossed out. But he was sure that this is the one piece that he has finished. And it is actually the one piece where he wrote Finis at the end. So there's no other work of his that has this kind of information. Right. Is it also true that Goethe was something of a philosopher himself? I think he considered himself to be more of a scientist than a philosopher. But I mean, in in that area... Science and philosophy were that close in those years. So if you do natural philosophy, that is philosophy as well as science. He wrote the Farbenlehre to have a point against Newton, which today's perspective is somewhat sweet. And he wrote quite some reflections on, at least on aesthetics. That's how far I want to go. He never wrote something that is, that is really straightforwardly philosophical. But when you look at, in particular, the Faust, you find so many of the current philosophical discussions that you cannot help but notice he knew all of that and he was aware what was going on and how important it was. So what are his main ideas with respect to aesthetic theory? I don't dare to go that far, but this is the part. No, dare. You can dare to go there. Yeah. I think his, his main idea in the, with the aesthetic is what, what he was really interested in, in particular with these ideas that he tested out in Faust. And so one thing is, he called that, in, and that was in relation to the Wilhelm Meister, he called that the continued reflections or repeated reflections, so that they are part in his novels that reflect on each other 
And that brings me to this other idea that he was really keen on, and um, that also comes out in the Faust very much, is that what needs to be integrated is the audience. So these reflections not only are reflections of within the pieces that he wrote, but there are also reflections on his time and on the people that are right, that are reading this. Um, he was very well aware that, in particular, his 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 dramas were made for an audience. I mean, he he. Uh, conducted these, these pieces himself, and he was very much involved at the theater in Weimar. And so he was, he was aware that any of these pieces has to have a draw to an audience, and the audience is absolutely necessary in order to really fill in all the gaps that are there. So that is, that is one part of his, I would call his aesthetics. Other parts, of course, are this idea of what he was fascinated by is the idea of metamorphosis. So that there are these continued developments of form, the continued developments of ideas, and the idea that all of that can be related to one another and has some essential archetype that then gets reflected in these different reflections of his novels and his dramas. Let me ask now about Faust. Faust is a traditional legend, and Goethe was far from alone from working with it. I just wondered if you could give us a very brief history of the Faust legend, and also an explanation of why you think Goethe wants to work with this material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was one, maybe two historical figures that are kind of the, the archetype for, for the Faust legend. One lived in, in Helmstadt, the other lived in Knittingen. So this is all German lore, so to say. Faust was as the legend has it, a university, well, an academic. He was not a university professor, but he studied at the university. He was a scientist. He was a humanist. But then he turned to, to the magics. And so in the, in the, in the history of, 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 of Faust, in the myth of Faust, you always have this feeling that he was not satisfied with the knowledge that he could have. He turned to the magics to really find out what is the real basis of everything in the world. So this, 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 the historical person, as far as we know, lived between 1480 and 1530s. And then nearly immediately after, or even during the lifetime of this Georg Faust, we have those stories that are written down and that focus on this idea of there is this person who made a pact with the devil in order to advance his, his, his knowledge. And we have also uh, Marinette theater that deals with this. And the very interesting aspect in this, in this tradition, for me at least, is that A, the way to England was quickly done. So um, we have the, the translation of the Faust legend that appeared in the, in the second half of the, of the 16th century. And nearly a year after, I think, was an English translation. And that English translation was very important for Marlowe, who took that up and made it into a play. And this idea of a play came then back to Europe and had its way through the ages. So you have it becoming a play almost immediately, it becoming used for the Marinette theater, and then also that it got connected almost immediately with the comical aspect. So you have, on the one hand, the I'm hesitant to say that these, these early pieces are tragedies. It's more that they, they show, they are, they are pieces that show, here's what happens if you go the, right, the wrong way. Maybe they're more like morality. Types. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they are. Marlowe still is, is very much about this morality. I mean, the whole play is full of 
these angels telling, talking to him <coughs> and telling him, um, you, you need to choose and you need to choose wisely. But once you step over a certain line, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he tries to sign the pact with the devil, he's not really capable to because the wound immediately closes and it says, flee, mm-hmm. man, flee. He resists that. He says, no, this is, this is still going to happen because I need to know, I need to go beyond my mediocre knowledge. So I will have this pact with the devil and he will help me. Can I ask a question in the traditional telling of Faust? And I think, mm-hmm. do you agree that Marlowe's play is pretty close to the traditional yeah. tale? Yeah. So Faust's quest for knowledge, why does he want it? Is it born from wonder and the desire to know, or is it pride or want of fame and honor? What's really driving him? Because knowledge is good. Yeah. On the one hand, I think it is pride. So the seven sins are very much present in Faust. They they get all of them get their, their fair share of the screen time. But pride is the one that counts for Faust himself. So he is proud and he thinks that he is that close to knowing everything and he's really frustrated of not getting to the real need. And so he really wants all of that. But then he squanders that knowledge or that that advance that he gets through the through, through the devil by just showing off, mm-hmm. which is a good sign of him just right. being proud and vain and right. not really being interested in all that other stuff. So pride is a really important aspect in there. On the other hand, I think that what Faust represents is a tendency of the of the time or the tension of the time. So when you have, on the one hand, the Reformation, on the, on the other hand, you have Renaissance and the infatuation with what was happening back then in antiquity, an interest mm-hmm. in the sciences and an interest in what is actually happening in this world. So you have, on the one hand, the looking beyond this world, and on the other hand, you have the looking deeper and deeper and deeper into this world. And that was a tension that is pretty much present in the Faust lore from the from the get-go. I think it only becomes really tragic when we get closer to Goethe's time himself. Because it seems to show to me what, what, what these people wanted to say. Also Lessing, who was fiddling with the idea of, of uh, writing a Faust piece and then just couldn't do it because it the character just didn't really match up with what he found uh, admirable. But so it gets tragic when, when the sense got stronger and stronger that there is no, there's no possibility of bringing these two pieces together. So we always will have the trouble bringing together our worldly desires and the desire to go beyond it. And that is pretty much what I think Goethe really had onto when he was writing at least the tragedy of the scholar, which is just one part of Faust one, um, but I think a really decisive one in order to characterize this this guy. So, why do you think that Goethe wanted to work with the Faust tradition, given that it was so well worn? On the one hand, I think he was just fascinated with the puppet plays that he saw everywhere. He didn't like the comical aspect that much, and he wanted to bring that to a new level. But he was fascinated by the by the tragedy of the scholar and found that this was somewhat reflective of his own striving for really understanding what is the real fabric of the world. So he himself, I think, saw himself quite well in this version of the Faust, even though I don't think uh, that he could see himself so much in the vain part. That is not quite good to say. Why don't we just talk about the main characters in Goethe's Faust? 
So the, the, the characters that we need to know, of course it's Faust, so he's sort of driving the whole plot because he develops all of these interests that he wants to have fulfilled and that bring him into these various endeavors that he starts. The other part, the counterpart of Faust, is Mephisto. I know that there are some interpretations that say, well, these two are so close together, they seem to be like the reflections, different kinds of reflections on one character. And I think that is true, even though Mephisto lacks the depth that Faust has. So Mephisto is a really interesting character, but he is one-dimensional. He makes fun of everything. He makes fun of the human beings, even though he also feels kind of bad for them. But he seems to not be capable to understand what actually drives Faust. Whenever Faust is saying something of his high aspirations, um, Mephisto makes fun of that. To a degree, he's right, because Faust tends to abstract and philosophize when he's in real trouble. And you see that the philosophizing just helps him to kind of distract himself from the real trouble and get into something else. So there's also some level of depth in, in Faust himself. But Mephisto is genuinely unable to see what the interest, what the human problem in, in all of this is. For him, this is all nothing. He keeps saying that this is the all nothing, and it doesn't matter what you do because it will all end up with you being dead and hopefully in Mephisto's hands. Okay, the other important character, so one important character that doesn't do much, but I think is really important to understand the whole play is God. He comes up in the prologue in heaven with Goethe wrote in the time that he was best friends with Schiller. And you see a lot of uh, Schiller's idea in the prelude uh, in the theater, but also in the prologue in heaven. So God is behind all of that. God and Mephisto supposedly have some sort of wager going on. It is not clear whether they actually bet on anything, God is so much beyond Mephisto, who is not Satan, who is not Lucifer, but who is one mediocre figure in the in in the in hell. So, so sort of like a lesser demon. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So in Marlowe, he is the emissary of the devil. In in Goethe's Faust, this is entirely unclear. He seems to be one with self. He has self motivation. He has his own interests. But he talks of the the devil and Satan and Fulbon time Goethe even planned of having Satan appear in the play, but then he dropped that. And I think this is also because Goethe didn't think of the Faust tragedy as being torn between Satan and, and God. That is not his interest. His interest is rather that there's God who is okay with human beings messing up as long as they are honestly striving for, well, we don't know, for becoming better, for perfection, realizing themselves time and again. Well, it is, if, it is really if, not, not really sure when you look at the prologue in heaven, God is quite happy in saying the human being can be redeemed as long as he strives. And you fear immediately, well, this striving is not going to be all good all the time. And still God is not saying, yeah, you shall not do that, but he actually shall do it in order to become better. Yeah, so that's interesting. I wonder what you think. I mean, when I was reading it, the opening to me made me think of the Book of Job, obviously, where God does make a, a bet with Satan about Job, namely that Job will, will remain a righteous man, even when basically everything's been taken away from him and mm -hmm. he undergoes profound suffering. Do you think that Goethe wanted us to think of that? Yeah, he wanted. 
Wow. He wanted that. So he said, why should I write all of these things by myself if they are better written elsewhere? Mm. Um, he lets um, Mephisto and I think also Faust quote from Shakespeare. He uses Dante and all of these other figures, really important figures, to uh, frame the whole story. And he said explicitly, of course I used I used Job because that is a good way to frame the whole thing. So he wanted us to have an idea, this is what's at stake. On the other hand, he changed very many aspects in there. So Job is, is the righteous man. Mm -hmm. Faust is not righteous. Mm -mm. Um, he is full of desires and he's base at times. At other times he, is, he has high aspirations, but he doesn't really know how to go about that. Those, he doesn't really repent to, of anything. I mean, you don't hear him talking at all about Gretchen in the first three acts of Faust two. Mm -hmm. When you when you watch this and you you watch the whole play, which I once did, it was grueling, but it's really interesting. How long was that? Oh uh, yeah, like four hours. Okay. <laughs> so um, you watch that and you watch the the end of Faust one, which ends with her calling out for Heinrich, which is also interesting that she doesn't even know his real name. And then the second part starts and there's no mentioning of her. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't feel sorry. He doesn't feel bad. He wakes up rejuvenated and, yeah, just goes on. I um, think yeah. Faust is absolutely self-absorbed. Absolutely. Like, I, he I, only, I do agree. Yeah. Yeah. And even if he seems to care for other people, so I just mentioned one more character, well, a couple, that is Philemon and Baltzis at the very end. So, of course, I was now going over Gretchen completely and over Helena, but I think we should return to those two when we talk about the female principles. But there's one last couple at the very end. It's Philemon and Baltzis who get killed by Mephisto because they need to make space for Faust's last project, which is to create new land for new people. And he behaves as if he's concerned about their well-being. And he says, yeah, yeah, you should get rid of them, but you should, should take them to another place and have make sure that they that they feel okay. And then Mephisto tells him, oh, yeah, well, it didn't quite go as planned, and they resisted, so we had to kill them. And he exclaims, this is your mistake, and I wanted just the best. But you you keep wondering. He wants maybe he wants the best for everybody, but he doesn't care how it's how, how it's carried out. And so that still sounds like self-absorption to me because he just deals with others as puppets of his own universe. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. that is fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I should just say that the translation that we're using for this discussion is the one by Walter Arndt, and it's also the Norton Critical Edition. Which is not expensive and has, I don't know, maybe amazing, 60 pages of interpretive notes, yep. which I found very, very helpful. So I do recommend this. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the wager and its explicit terms. So it seems that we've talked about Faust and striving. Obviously, this is a central theme of the text. One idea that I had, when I was reading it, I kept thinking about Augustine's confessions in the sense that Augustine is also overcome by this endless striving, you know, his restless heart. He's never satisfied, you know, and he's just like this consummate 
and overachiever and, and, and philosopher and eventually theologian. Is Faust striving really all that different? And if so, how? So Faust says this, this famous line that there are these two souls in his breast. On the one hand, he wants to aspire to the highest knowledge. He wants to become godlike for Goethe. This was Titanism, that, that he is somebody who really wants to get into heaven and replace God. But it's all kind of a transcendent striving. So he wants to know what's behind the world. He wants to have it all and understand it all. On the other hand, uh, it's his the other soul that in his breast. And that is, well, I, I'm hesitant to say it's base because he is actually rather bored when, when Mephisto tries to make him drunk and tries to have him have all that fun that the students had in Leipzig or something like that. He, it is more sensual. It is more worldly. It is oriented towards a satisfaction that is not intellectual. So he has he has these two different drives that, that kind of go back to what I, what, what I was saying before. And on the one hand, the striving to intellectualize everything, to understand everything, to get from the ancient pool of knowledge everything that there is to get. And on the other hand, this, this need to immerse oneself into this world, this need to be powerful. His pride is, is also there in Goethe's house that he he wants to be seen as somebody. He wants to conquer. He wants to conquer women. He wants to conquer the world. He wants to offer. He wants to be the one who actually rescues everybody else. So he is the self-centeredness again, of course, that he claims he wants to have new land for new people. But he doesn't quite mention the very important aspect. It has to be provided by him has to make him immortal and it's this this constant it's this constant tension in him that it has to be here it also has to be in in the afterworld so it has to be both mm -hmm. i mean do you think these two souls is that sort of like, like the transcendent and the secular is that sort of like yeah. his way of thinking of the sacred and the profane these two i do think so yeah yeah, yeah pretty simply Yeah, so his striving when he makes the wager, mm -hmm. Mephisto, which is one of these senses of striving in the driver's seat, or is it just both? Like, what's? Let's talk about the wager. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about that wager first, even though it's the second in the in the, in the tragedy. So it is really interesting that. Faust doesn't seem to expect much of Mephisto. He is pretty sure that Mephisto doesn't have the powers that he actually needs in order to fulfill his strivings. And Mephisto gets to him in a moment where Faust is really defeated. He just tried to, to get the Earth Spirit to do his bidding. What, and the, he what gets, is the Earth Spirit? I was so confused. Yeah, it is, is confusing. Like Gaia, Mother Earth, what was that? Yeah, so I think that the Earth Spirit stands for the um, so the actual power of everything over over everything that is on the Earth. It's the, the binding principle of the microcosm, as it's mentioned there. It's, it's interesting that Mephisto constantly talks about the microcosm and the Earth Spirit talks about the macrocosm. So it's the big... Thing. It's, it's the power to actually control everything. Where What Mephisto offers him 
is actually not any real power. It's an illusionary power. Right. Whenever something happens, it's just an illusion and people just fall for it, but it is nothing that actually changes anything. So had he been successful in binding the earth spirit to him, then he would have been all powerful. But he wasn't. The, the earth spirit tells him directly, you are not the man for me. And Faust understands that he accepts that. But of course, it also makes him very upset. And then comes Mephisto, where Faust just thought about committing suicide and just got hold, held back by the, the Easter chorus. And he is not a believer, but he says, it calls on my, my previous self. And I cannot just, just kill myself now because it still makes me think of my youth and I cannot waste that. Which is an interesting parallel to, to the um, dedication where supposedly Goethe talks himself and tells us that these are the spirits of his youth that are calling for. So Mephisto gets to Faust in a really dark hour and Faust is not thinking that Mephisto is really going to help him. What he wants from Mephisto is diversion. He wants him to take him through the whole world and show him everything. And it's actually kind of, kind of unsure who is in the driver's seat. I think both of them think that they manipulate each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have lots of moments in the play where they talk to each other and then there's an aside. Most of the time it's Mephisto talking to the audience. And it's always that Mephisto says, yeah, yeah, now he thinks that he has me, but I actually have him and I'm making him do what I want. But you can see that Faust is not really just falling for Mephisto. So he, he wants Mephisto to divert him of his pains, but he doesn't think that Mephisto can actually help him. He has a long, it's, it's a... 29 long curse of everything that there is and he curses even hope happiness and everything else that is transcendent that is not just worldly and he does not believe that that Mephisto can actually help him but why does he then do the bad well I think really because he, he doesn't see anything better coming up and so he wants to at least test out whether he can out outsmart the devil is fast trying to be happy or has he given up on being happy? Like, what's the end game for Faust? I think the end game for Faust would be he, he would want to become happy. So, so the, the Vager's terms are that whenever he would actually say in one moment, Terry, you are beautiful, that would be the moment that Mephisto actually wins. So he is striving for happiness. But at the same time, he's pretty transparent about that by himself, that he will not get there. And that makes him so sure that he can win this bet ah, with Mephisto. He's pretty sure that he's clever So it's clever a bet enough. born of despair. Yeah. <laughs> and also, again, this pride that he says, okay, I cannot be happy, but at least I'm proud of myself because I can outsmart the devil. And in the end, maybe he does. I mean, if we now go rush forward to Act 5 in, in Faust 2, in a way, Faust says to the moment, or at least in anticipation of this one moment, oh, I pause and I feel satisfaction, I feel happiness, because I'm expecting that moment to come. Mephisto doesn't even understand the exaltation, he doesn't even understand this condition in there, that Faust is not saying, I say now that I'm happy, but he says in in my feeling that I might be happy once I've been successful with building this free land for free people. Then I might be happy. 
and I'm just enjoying this pre-feeding, so to say. So Mephisto doesn't even understand that, and he says, oh, this last moment, it was like his whole life, it was nothing, it was stupid, and it came to nothing. But he still thinks he is one. So now Faust is dead, and he, Mephisto, can grab his soul, and he should be able to, if we just look at the technicalities, Faust did kind of say that he's happy now, so he did kind of pause and has this, this experience of satisfaction. But then Mephisto gets distracted by the very attractive angels, and they snatch him <laughs> away. It's just, it's just so funny, because uh, and that brings me then also to the first bet between God and Mephisto, which is also not clear whether it's a bet at all, mm-hmm. because God just says, human beings strive. It's, it's kind of, this God reminds me so much of this discussion of the vocation of mankind that is so prevalent in, in late enlightenment, where all of these people say, this is the basic trait of human beings that they strive. They have to strive for perfection. They will never reach it, but it's good enough if they try. And we have even a tiny, tiny rest of Mendelssohn's thought that what human beings need is resistance in order to become to get better, when, when, when God is saying it's, it's good when they have problems because then that, that still makes them strive. So it seems to me that this bet between God and Mephisto is not material because God says from the get-go he will be redeemed. And in the very end, he uses this trick of those, of those attractive angels and Mephisto's stupidity to snatch Austin's soul away. And it's, it's rather funny that even between the angels, there are differences. So in the, in the very last scene, you have the little boys that died, I think, in the moment when they are born, and they have to be taken up by these higher angels. You have the archangels. You have young angels and older angels. So the moment of development, the moment of striving, is even not over in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's what we learn at the last scene. And we see that the younger angels are really proud of themselves that they outsmarted the devil. Mm-hmm. Which, if we think of angels in the traditional way, this is weird. They shouldn't be proud of breaking the terms of a wager and right. snatching a soul away against the terms of everything mm-hmm. that, that Faust and Mephisto um, agreed upon. But they do. They do it anyways. And that reminds me just of this first wager, where you think God has his will anyways, regardless of what happens. Yeah, well, that's true. It seems like making a bet with God's a bad idea. But um, <laughs> but look, this striving for perfection, you know, I don't know how much Goethe really explains what that means in Faust. There's a traditional understanding of that, in which, which is Aristotelian, Platonic, mm-hmm. in which we're all striving towards our telos, and our telos is set by our nature. We're a certain kind of thing. And so our nature sets a, a measure for our striving. So it's not striving simpliciter. Mm-hmm. It's striving towards a specific goal. And you either get the goal or you don't. And your striving was measured by whether or not you got the goal. And of course, in this tradition, they think of the highest good in, in terms of contemplation knowing what is what is true. Does Goethe give a more fleshed out picture of this striving? No, not really. So I think that with the terms of the wager, it kind of gives you this idea that this a, a certain kind of contemplation could be 
the highest calling of man because this is what what Faust also wants. He wants mm -hmm. this kind of harmony. He wants to be satisfied, but it doesn't he doesn't really mean a base kind of satisfaction, but he really means something that comes pretty close to what I think is encapsulated in eudaimonia that it's 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 a feeling of elated happiness and not not some not some base form of happiness or satisfaction that we might think of. Mm. So in that sense, it is still on par with that. But he seems to be convinced that there is no way that the realization of that, well, on the one hand, I think he doesn't think that the realization of that is given for anyone and it is Faust, Faust's tragedy that he thinks he can get there, but he cannot. On the other hand, it, it's not so that there is this one kind of nature that we have, but there are these different aspects in the human nature that make it so hard to find the harmony in that. These different ideas that Faust is after, I think, might represent different courses of action. So to become knowledgeable, to become the good man, the good husband to, to a wife like Gretchen, who represents kind of the smallish domestic area of life, to become the hero, to become the aid to the powerful. All of these could be different ways of becoming more perfect or becoming or fulfilling one's nature. But the, the, the tragic thing is that they cannot all go well together. And he tries them all. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't succeed in any of them, but also because he cannot just stick to this one. It's just there's always something that draws him further to something else that make, makes make him unhappy. So, for example, in the Gretchen tragedy, to a degree, it's, it's not clear why he cannot just stay there and, and have a happy life with her, and then that's it. Because he behaves as if he's really in love, but for him from the get-go, it's clear that he's not going to stay there. He's not going to actually love her, even though he keeps saying that he does. Mm -hmm. And so you, you become quite convinced in the course of the play that, yeah, he might strive for something like a higher form of happiness, but he really, really doesn't have any means to get there without being torn apart. Right. Well, let's talk about, I'm going to use vulgar American pronunciation of Gretchen. Uh, so let's talk about Gretchen just in a general way. I mean, I can't really figure her out. One, why does she like Faust? He's so gross. I don't get it. But also, it's pretty clear that Gretchen, you know, she reminds me of like Ophelia or Dido's, who's sort of like the... The woman who falls madly in love and then throws it, goes mad and kills herself. What really is, is Goethe doing there? It is confusing, in particular because she comes back at the end of Faust II mm -hmm. um, and seems to be responsible for the final redemption, which is really confusing. Yeah, um, she, she goes from being Ophelia to being Beatrice. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, first off, what she stands for is this possibility of domestic happiness. You see that all the scenes that she's in, it's all enclosed spaces. Those are idyllic spaces. It is also the traditional religious way. She's definitely religious. I she's mean, Catholic. Yeah. They, they, they kind of keep it. No, she goes to confession and she she's, does. And she's, she's, she's praying to the Virgin Mary. She's totally Catholic. <laughs> okay, you were an expert in that. <laughs> um, but she is religious and she's honestly religious. I mean, at the beginning, uh, there's one moment where it says it was half child's play, half devotion. Mm -hmm. So she's 
completely naive, and as long as this naivete is not is not challenged, there's no there's no problem with it being child play and devotion. She, for, for her, it's not a problem. It's all clear. She has to follow the creed of the church, but she also has to follow what her mother is telling her. But she wasn't tested at all, and when she is tested by Faust, it doesn't seem to me that she's really succeeding here. So why is she attracted to him? Because there's this part in her that is also sensual and that is open to this kind of pride that he represents to her. So when she sees him, she is fascinated by him because he's so frank. She, she suspects that he must be a nobleman because other kind of people wouldn't dare talking to her like that. And then she finds the necklace or something in, in, her, in her room and she becomes even more fascinated. And there is something to this, that there's this naive girl from the countryside um, who cannot help but be fascinated by the noble language. And that is not pure gold and pure good, but there is something in her that is also kind of responsible for her failure, and that is that she is open to these influences. She's also accompanied by Marta, her best friend, the elderly neighbor, who very much represents kind of this more base trait of, of the woman who helps the younger girl to, to secretly meet her lover and mm -hmm. to fall from graces. And when she talks to Mephisto, Marta talks to Mephisto, it's, it's full of innu innuendos and mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's lustful and it's, it's, that is Body. the based vile kind of kind of uh, um, body vulgar yeah very much so and so this is the version that is openly just like going for it and Gretchen is not like that but she has a side in her that at least is fascinated by this possibility and she gives Faust everything that he asks for on the one hand it is because of devotion so she, she is devoted to him she loves him but on the other hand she doesn't really know what what she ought to do so she tells him that she loves him which is really not what you're supposed to do as a young maiden mm -hmm. um, you have to keep your honor to yourself but she kind of throws it away on the one hand she knows what she ought to do from her mother and from her priest on the other hand she just does what her man is telling her and so this is the version, the weak version of Gretchen, so to say. But there's another version of Gretchen that is also at play, and that makes her really interesting in the drama itself. She's kind of the only one who develops at all. Faust is not really developing. He is constantly striving, and he gets mm -hmm. new ideas and new, new goals, but he's not developing. Mephisto, of course, doesn't develop. He's a principal, so why should he develop right. anything? Marta, of course, doesn't develop. All of these other figures are not really interesting in that regard, but she changes and she becomes more aware of what she's doing. She even has this very controlled demeanor. So when she when Faust approaches her, she says, I, I don't need your company. I, I can do this by myself. And she seems to have a certain strength. And that strength then also develops when she finally understands what she did and repents. She yeah, she does become crazy, so there is too much of a strain on her that she can actually stand. But when we look at the dungeon scene in the very end, which reminds me more of Socrates uh, refusing to not be, be condemned by his polis. So where she decides, no, I, I cannot just leave with you, in particular not as long you, dear Faust, are accompanied by Mephisto, whom she recognizes as the principle of evil. And she's the only one to be really, really clear on that. So she says, I, I cannot follow you. I have to repent and I have to go through it all. That didn't seem to me the least Ophelian kind of trait that she has. So mm -hmm. first I had the impression, yeah, she's like Ophelia. She just goes mad and she tells everybody the truth, but it's just 
behind the veil of madness. But, but then she really stands for her principles and she understands, I cannot live in sin, I cannot keep on doing that. And she already, as far as we understand it, murdered her child, even though she still seems to think that it still lives. But then on the other hand, she knows that it has to be buried beside her. So she knows she, she that drowned her infant. Yeah. Yeah, but she asked Faust to run after him and maybe because he was still moving. So she wants to be unsure about it. And are we, are we to believe that she did that in her crazed, mad state? That I think, yes, we are yeah. supposed to it's see that. Dark. that she, is, she is really buckling down under the pressure that she, all of a sudden she's under. And those scenes in the, in the last part of the Tekian tragedy, they show how vicious people are in condemning others. And she mm -hmm. understands that two weeks prior, she would have been different. Well, maybe rather half a year prior, she would have been different and she would have condemned people too. And now she's on the other side and she sees how cruel that is. And she cannot really take all of that. It's too much for her. She faints in the church. But then I think we are supposed to also think that she gave birth to that baby and she found it in, the, in those fits of madness. And she is in the throngs of that madness still when Faust encounters her in dungeon. But then she leaves that and she becomes pretty transparent to, towards the, to herself and to what she did. And she understands either I now continue to live in the presence of evil or I die and repent for what I did. And she decides for the matter. Mm -hmm. So that might be why she's capable of then still being in the chorus of the repentant to rescue Faust and to accompany him. But it still seems to me, in terms of grace, that it still seems to be like a stretch. Even though I think maybe Faust is also about this, that we are not there to reckon with grace. It comes to you and you did all the wrong stuff and you didn't even repent yourself and still there's a principle there for you, um, rescuing you. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the question of what she represents at the end and, and the nature of his salvation, you know, it's difficult because he is working with this kind of obviously Christian material, but Goethe is not a committed Christian. And so it's hard to believe that this is a story about a proud man being redeemed by God's yeah. grace. Yeah. So given that, what's the nature of the redemption? Because even yeah. though it's billed as a tragedy, in, in the end, he, he is redeemed. So what's the nature of that? I've been struggling with that myself. On the one hand, I'm inclined to think this tragedy is framed by these three steps in the frame. So you have the dedication, you have the preload, and then you have the prologue in heaven. So it is framed in these three steps. And you are supposed to be kind of removed from the scene at the beginning. So you're getting all these introductions that make it clear this is something made with a certain kind of interest. So these interests are parodied in the prelude, where you have these different kinds of ideas as to why we should put a play on the stage anyways, and what, what the audience wants and what the audience expects. And then you have, in particular in the in Mephisto, you have this person who constantly breaks the, the fourth wall and constantly talks to the audience. There's even one stage direction where it says Mephisto talks to that part of the audience who don't clap. So he even kind of wants the audience to react in a certain way so that he can get them into the play and be, be kind of part of the play. So with that, I, I want to get at this, that 
we shouldn't be convinced and we should feel like this is not going to cut it. And so I think in that feeling is still this kernel of it being a tragedy. Yeah, maybe Faust got redeemed at the end, but it's totally unconvincing. And it's even done by a trick, mm-hmm. which is unworthy of God and the angels. You, you, you kind of feel this is, this is weird. This, this shouldn't happen. So you leave as, as, an, as an audience member, you leave the theater and you think, no, that is not right. Mm. So you still have this feeling you cannot redeem Faust. Just, it just cannot work and it shouldn't work. You don't want it to work. I mean, it's also very interesting that just before Faust 1 ends, um, it's really clear all the, the, the kind of the sheer amount of bad things, of maybe even evil things that he did. It's so overwhelming and it ends there. And also her, her deed is, is overwhelming and still the voice from the heaven comes and says she's redeemed. So you leave that already unsatisfied and, and, and crushed by the weight of what Faust already did. And then in Faust 2, you might feel sympathy with him during the first three acts because it's all a play. It's, it's very much fantastic. The, the Helena act appeared in the 20s by itself, and it was called a fast phantasmagoria. So it mm-hmm. is something fantastic, and it's just a just a play that is going on, and everybody is weird, and it's it's it, it has so many layers to it that it's it's an intellectual play to figure all of these layers out. So all of that you can endure, and you can still think, oh, your Faust is maybe not that bad. But then comes in particular Act Five, and he comes across as this self-centered, cold planning person who actually has no regard for anybody else but himself and you you again have this feeling no this person cannot be redeemed and if he's redeemed by a trick it's even worse so in the very end you have this feeling no it doesn't work and even if he he goethe now acts as if it can work it even makes it more clear that this is not going to, to function well and that is that you're not going to go with well, why do you think that he wants to leave the audience dissatisfied? Because I think he was deeply convinced that you cannot really be redeemed other than through the absolute act of grace. But how does he parse that? What is the absolute act of grace? I think he doesn't Gertrude? believe in it at all. So the thought might be this. Well, to be redeemed, you would need God's grace. God's grace doesn't exist, so mm. no one is redeemed. Maybe the redemption part for him wasn't as important as this this idea. We have trouble really bringing all of these principles that are driving us together. And it should feel to the audience as well like a problem. And on the other hand, so there, there, are, there, are, different, there, there are different thoughts that come into this as well. So on the one hand, we shouldn't forget that Goethe didn't like the more base kind of comedy that came with the puppet theater version of Faust. Um, but what he was really for was a sense of irony and a sense of having, having some, some sort of fun with the material. So there, there is a lot of joking around. There's a lot of lighthearted, more lighthearted fun than, than you would think at, at first glance in, in that play, in particular in Faust too. So maybe he also didn't want to say, oh, it's all bad. But he also wanted to say, look at that, this is all a display of the world and what's going on. And it's, on the one hand, deeply tragic because we cannot get to a good ending in there. But on the other hand, it's, it's great because we can enjoy it so much. 
and we can we can kind of craft everything around that and we can dance around that. I guess this is the part that Nietzsche was really did really like about this. So on the on the one hand, it is a tragedy, but it's not something that we should always weep about. But right? we should we should mm -hmm. still kind of go on and 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 look for the the better part in there because there is there is development. When we were talking about metamorphosis. There is there's all of this stuff going on, and there's a constant renewal of old ideas, and it lives, and it really has a vibrant sense of life to it. That's really fascinating. I mean, th this last part, you you end and you think like, nah, that's not it. It's, it's maybe the redemption is not as important, but what is what is really important is that the whole thing lives and breathes and and is is exciting. So maybe that is also with him his message. If an author ever has a message, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But you can see that he had fun coming yeah. up with all of these ideas. I think he said himself uh, when he wrote some some of the parts, in particular of the classical by Bogus Night, he he was chuckling to himself because he thought, oh yeah, everybody who has to read this will think that he lost it mm -hmm. in his old age. Mm -hmm. um, but he was pretty sure that no no no, this this is this is something that is that is important that I want, that I want people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so. I I would rather concentrate on these things than on the impossibility of redemption because in the end Goethe would say I have no say in that I don't know yeah uh, maybe we are maybe we are not I just don't know but just imagine how fun it would be if you could see all that display mm -hmm. of all of these powers mm -hmm. and even the angels are not I mean the archangels are glorious they are awesome when you hear them talking and they they represent also different versions of change. They are also talking about change, but they are talking of this celestial change. They are talking about the changes in the in the real powers of the world and in nature and all of that. They are awesome, they are wonderful, but if the whole play were done by the archangels, it would be rather boring. Mm -hmm. So we need these others who right. have their mistakes and make their mistakes and their figures, but, but they are they are enjoyable and they are fun. Right. So I think that's awesome. Well, let me ask just a final question here. As you know, the podcast kind of proceeds on the assumption that we should all be reading great literature. Why? Because ultimately self-knowledge, it has something to teach us about ourselves. And so I just invite you to say what you think Goethe's vows can teach us about the human condition mm -hmm. and, and maybe just setting aside whether or not Goethe intended to have some big message. I mean, what do you think we can glean from the text about the nature of human beings and maybe human striving for happiness? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I think what, what, what the Faust is kind of like a huge repertory of everything that European culture had to offer in that time. So that, that mm -hmm. makes it just so interesting to read because um, we haven't even talked about the verse and the, the different verse forms that he uses. And we I mean, haven't talked about most of it. <laughs> that, that, that's true, but I'm, I'm, I'm particularly happy that we didn't talk about those because I constantly mix them up. But I, I, I'm just in awe of how he, he deals with that material as well. So he has all these different forms of verse, and it, it's from all areas. It's from Calderon, it's from Dante, it's from Shakespeare, it's from everybody. And he has all of these ideas that were prevalent, not only in, in his own time coming from the Enlightenment into uh, German classicism, 
and all the ideas by Kant and by the idealists. But he also deals with this, these ideas from the times of the Reformation, of the Renaissance, of medieval Germany. Whenever he talks about Romanticism, he means medieval Germany, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. And so you have ideas about architecture. There's a lot of architecture going on in this play. So you, you have all of these, these different ideas, and he brings them together in this awesome display of human ingenuity and human failure. So on the one hand, you could say he, he's giving us a picture of modern man and how wrong we can go with that. In a way, he, he can, we can also say that what Mephisto represents is an idea of human beings using, using instruments, using their ingenuity to craft all these instruments that help us to achieve our goals, technology. And we have actually no idea of what we are doing. And what we see in Faust 2 is we make use of that technology and gives us the illusion of progress. Mm -hmm. But what it actually does is it's completely destructive. In oh, particular, yeah. because we have no idea what we are actually doing. I, I mean, sometimes I'm just so fascinated by how much he... Well, I, I'm pretty sure Goethe didn't know <laughs> what was going to come. But how, how aptly he kind of capture it. What still is at stake with us today, that we have all of this technology, we are so fascinated by what we can do and what we can achieve with all of that, but we totally miss the point of what it does to us in, in the sense of in, in our relations, then I think of Gretchen and, and Faust again, what it does to our environment, mm -hmm. um, all of these issues, they are, they are not there with kind of this warning teacher mode that somebody scolds us for not acting right. But he is somebody who just tries it out and shows, oh yeah, this can be troublesome and we have to deal with that and we have to think about that. So that is still something that fascinates me. On the other hand, whenever I read it, I'm, I'm just blown away how many ideas are in there. They're still kind of forming this one piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm less convinced that Faust 2 is actually one piece. I, I suffered through this one production of it, and it was awesomely done. But it's just so much. And he just shows you his erudition, and you think, ah, oh, come on. I don't <laughs> want to know that you know who Anaxagoras was. And maybe I know too, but why do you have to tell me now? So so there is also quite some annoyance. Like the third hour in, you were like, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. And so I would also invite people to dare to kind of just read parts of it first mm. and enjoy a particular dialogue between Mephisto and Faust and then move over to another act and just jump around because mm -hmm. these re repeated reflections that Goethe is talking about, I think they also allow for a rather modern reading style. Mm -hmm. You can enjoy this very much if you just go to it and read a portion of it and then step back. It's always helpful though, in particular with Faust, if you have a big painting on your wall where you have to make sure that you know what, what is happening and which act and when does this happen and when does that happen. And then you kind of lift all these gems out of the big mess that is there, but you give it structure and you kind of figure out figure it out by yourself. And it's a huge learning experience just yeah. to to dig around and find all these gems and then try to synthesize them again. Yeah, well, it's it's eminently quotable. But also, I mean, I'm glad that you encourage people to take it in like bite-sized chunks because it, you know, it is long and, and it is somewhat difficult. And I also think that people really resist, especially younger people, 
resist that they think, well, I read a book and so I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. You're just beginning. What? Like every, every book that's worth reading, I've read like at least three times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like the third time I, I maybe understand yeah. it. <laughs> like, yeah. I've got, like I've got a <laughs> solid grip on it by that. Maybe I'm just slow. I don't know. Oh, well, but a really rich, like a great book yeah, is absolutely. one that rewards being absolutely. read many times. And I think that people are put off by the idea because they think, well, but my God, it's it's so long. Mm-hmm. Look, well, you've already read it. You yeah. don't have to, you know, it's not like you don't have to sit down and read the whole thing again. No, no. You know, no. just go back to that one part or whatever. Exactly. Okay, well, we should wrap it up. This was really great and really fun and super helpful. So thank I you again. It yeah, <laughs> thank you again, Anne, for joining us. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please do me a favor and leave a positive review on iTunes. And if you have suggestions or recommendations for the podcast, please let me know. I really love to hear from you, and I'm definitely open to requests, which you can send to fray.gen at gmail.com Or you can leave a public comment over on The Virtue Blog. That's www.thevirtueblog.com.